This podcast is a chat I had with Meow Ludo from the Science Party. We had a chat about cyborg rights as he recently implanted his public transport card into his body. Um, we also had a chat about cryptocurrency and the blockchain and just a general discussion about what's happening with the Science Party. All right, so Meow, how did you get your name? Um, so I wrote down a list of like like 10 or 20 names I was some friends one time and we just crossed out all the ones that we didn't like and then there was one left over and that's uh, what we picked and then I went down first as a marriage's office and changed it but I'd always wanted to, ch- to change it ever since I was younger just as an experience I didn't really care what it was changed to I was name agnostic so um, I just thought it'd be a fun experience that, that is like legally available but not everyone gets to have the chance to try Wow. If I put myself in your situation, I think I'd be pretty damn scared to change my name. Did you did you feel those emotions at all or did Um, I was a little bit nervous, but I was a very different person when I changed my name. How old were you? So I was like twenty one, twenty two. And now I'm like 33, so a lot's happened since then. But I think as well, um, like it was kind of a novelty at that point. I was, I was, I was, you know, just left school, working kind of a cruisy call center job. So I didn't really have anything to lose, if that makes sense. But yeah. I grew into my name, and it was like, if like if I look back on it now, it was actually a really positive branding experience because it differentiated myself from a lot of other people that maybe were trying to do similar things. But, you know, uh, it's very hard to forget my name, so it sticks in people's minds. I don't think I would necessarily go and change my name now, which is why I've still got it. But um, it's it's been a fun journey, and I would have almost nothing but positive things to say about it. That's awesome. Um, so do you think it's put you in a better position, like being on a ballot? Because I-, I was wondering when you when you ran at the science party whether your name had anything to do with your popularity. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, you were one of the more popular science party candidates. Yeah, definitely. There was other science party candidates that got a lot more votes than me, like double my votes from um, running in a rural area, for example. So I think that all these things have to be balanced out. Like the, a strange name will only get you so far. Right. Um, it might get you noticed, but past then you still have to do the legwork to, to make yourself a viable candidate. So like my, uh, some of the popularity from the news reports and things would have come from my name. It gave me a bigger p- platform to be able to announce what I was uh, interested in and what the science party was saying. That alone gave me a bit of an advantage. But, you know, there's all sorts of other people that also have similar advantages. Say, for example, you're the youngest candidate running. That might give you a bigger platform. If you used to own a fish and chip store and now you hate brown people, that gives you a platform. And all these things give you diff- different types of platform, but it really matters what you do after them. So I think that the thing that made me feel really confident was we were at a, like, they get all the candidates together and they have a, a community forum. And I debated Anthony Albanese. And that was, that was nerve wracking. But after the event, some people came up to me and said that I changed their mind and they moved from being a Labor voter to a Science Party voter in that election for me because they, they heard me speak with conviction, speak with passion, speak in a way that was educated about certain policy and agreed with my vision for a federal representation of brain loss. So even if I had a funny name, they might not necessarily vote for me. But, you know, I hope I get even more votes this year and I hope they're not just oh, – sorry, next year. I don't, but I hope they're not just donkey votes. I hope they actually listen to what I'm saying and believe in the, the vision of the Science Party. 
society. Awesome. Sounds like it couldn't have worked out much better. And the thing is, I do a lot of stuff outside as well. You know, I, I run Australia's first open access molecular biology laboratory. Uh, I'm a passionate technological evangelist. I'm a futurist. I'm on a panel every other week talking about the things that I care about. So it's like not just talking about it, but actually going out and doing it, communicating with people, meeting people, and then making stuff happen as a result of that. Well, that's a good segue into our next topic, which was the um, the implant. So you implanted your Opal card into your body. Um, just for people listening in Melbourne, that's the equivalent of the Mikey card we have here. So how did you how did you do that? Yeah, so it's a bit of a long story how the whole thing kind of came about. And I might just I'll start at the beginning. We um, I, I was already implanted, so I had at that stage I had one implant, which was a, a little NFC chip. Now the NFC chip is a piece of technology that drives things like a Mikey card. It drives things like your PayPass, and I, I have one which is just a blank reprogrammable tag. We we don't see them a lot around at the moment, just the blank ones or or the reprogrammable ones, but they're starting to find their ways into things like business cards. Some McDonald's tables even have them. So if you put your phone down on the table, it will pop up. So I got this just to see what this whole technology was about. Oh, so you didn't you didn't actually like chop a little bit out of the card and put it inside. Uh, that's you. coming. So I had, I had this. I had this chip already implanted, and I was talking about using this for payment payment platforms. The first chip that I had doesn't actually have the capability to run on the MyKey network or the PayPal network. The reason for this, to get a bit technical, is that this chip runs a protocol called MyFair Classic. Now, all the other chips we use for banking and transport use a protocol called Desfire. Now, Desfire is a security layer that sits on top of MyFair Classic. So it's it's actually requires a little bit more than what my chip had. But I was talking about other payment systems we could use when Desfire implants become available. Since I've said that, Desfire implants have become available and uh, basically brought um, Amor Grafstra over from Dangerous Things, who made my implant, uh, for an event which was a launch of a video game called ASX Mankind Divided. Now, in this event, we were talking about cyborg rights and we were implanting people. As a result of that, he and I were talking about where we think this technology was going and we said we could probably do this with an Opal card if we took the chip out. So he bought an Opal card from the newsagent, which wasn't attached to any name or number because in New South Wales, most Opal cards are actually registered. And he went back to America, he dissolved away the plastic of the card, made a a flexible antenna, and then he resoldered it together, encased it in a biocompatible plastic and posted it back to me. And then I went down to uh, to see Joltron, who's a body modification expert uh, and piercer, (laughs) and he he performed the surgery to put it inside. Whoa. Now, I I have a chip which is basically the same as the, the Opal one, but because it was designed from scratch, it's so small you can't even feel it, whereas this other one is kind of like something about half the size of a pea in the back of my hand. Oh, I really wasn't expecting it to be that involved. I I, I was imagining that you, you um just chopped up a Mikey or an Opal card and then just sort of implanted it under your skin. Yeah, so to make sure that it functions correctly and that it doesn't get rejected by my body, I was lucky enough to have some of the world's experts help me out to do it. And really, the, the, all I did was have a put in. You know, um, Amol and Joltron are the people who really did the legwork to get that to happen. And that's because they both believe in a, in a future that I also believe in. So the, the thing that like attracted me to um, this, the post in the science party, and it said, this could be Australia's first cyborg rights case. Yeah, so what are your views on cyborg rights? And and could you just um before answering that just explain what a what a cyborg means? 
Yeah, so so we, we throw around the term cyborg. Te- technically, we're bionic. If you say cyborgs, I think it, it evokes a very different kind of view. And, and this is a lot of us in this scene are transhumanists. So we believe in the augmentation of the human body using technology. Now, we already we already do this with, with things like Implanon, which is a, a hormonal implant, and chemistry and biochemistry are, are, are technologies as well. It's just this is using electronic technology. So it's a little bit different. The other thing is that um, the technology that I'm putting in my body isn't essential. So if we think about things like hip replacements or pacemakers, they're not very controversial at all. People know that these people need this to have a, a good quality of life. Transhumanists and the cyborg rights kind of activists are saying, well, what about if we take an ordinary life and make it better? or more easy or more convenient. So this is this is where we kind of come in, which is non-essential medical implants. And Implanon, or an IUD, is actually in this same category. They're not essential, but they do make your quality of life higher. And for me, not having to think about where my train ticket is or anything like that, or being able to tap onto the train when I have my hands full and not even consciously process what I'm doing is, is an enhancement of my life. One academic from Adelaide called it the dumbest superpower ever. Um, I think this is kind of hilarious, though, because she said it's just so simple. You know, it's an opal card. Who cares? And I think that the the augmentations that you use every single day and just take one thing off your mind are actually the most important. You know, if we have these brain-computer interfaces that allow you to surf the internet and do a million things at once, that would be cool. But really, the things that I want to be able to do is boil the jug before I get out of bed or open my front door by just walking up to it and it knowing I'm approaching the house because this starts to take away all that mental garbage that is on the back of your mind and distracts you from the things you actually care about. So I think that these are the most important upgrades. Now, going back to the cyborg rights, um, so yesterday, Rich Lee just had his uh, his children taken away from him, mm-hmm. and part of the court case was involved uh, was talking about his biohacking activities. I won't go heaps into it, but this is not the greatest outcome. At the end of the court case, they they basically said that the biohacking activities didn't factor in to the decision to take away his kids. But you can see in the transcript that there were some factors that did, which was his attitudes towards stuff that came out of biohacking and him suggesting alternate therapies that were maybe cutting edge but weren't technically approved by government and stuff like that. So there was one where he suggested his kids get 3D printed mouth guards basically instead of braces because they were more cost effective and that visually they were nicer and that he could manufacture this himself self under the guidance of a non-American orthodontist and his wife used that as evidence against him in court that his biohacking activities were dangerous. The method that he was using is proven to be safe. It just wasn't FDA approved. So this was the, that was the first cyborg rights case and it looks like the next one will actually be in Australia where I am going to challenge um, Opal and Transport New South Wales over the fact that I'd never signed their terms of use. I agreed to them by buying the card and using it even though it's a human right to have access to this whether I have access to public transport whether I sign their terms of use or not and that by putting it into my hand I think that the terms of use have changed because they weren't written with that, that possibility of that happening in mind. So do the terms of use change when I make it a part of me? Because if they shut down my card now, they actually shut down a part of me. Why do you think Opal or whoever runs the cards, why do you think they didn't want you to put it inside yourself? To be honest, who the fuck knows? Like, <laughs> that the most surprising thing about this entire fiasco is how much they care. The words innovation and public transport aren't often heard together in the same sentence. I did this and gave them heaps of free press. If they'd just silent, like just said, this is really cool, we hope other people do it, it would have been a non-issue. It would have been a non-story. But because they were like, we are going to shut this down, we're going to force you to chop this out of your hand, it all of a sudden became very interesting. But I honestly think it's bureaucratic laziness. 
they already had a, ter- a set of terms of use that they could just fall back on. And instead of making any decisions it, or even really thinking about it and thinking about what this means for, for me and um, their, their cards in general, they just fell back to their default position. And that's like a classic bureaucratic move. Yeah, me and a friend, as we were driving to go surfing, we were talking about this. Like, we're wondering, we're trying to come up with ideas. Why would they not want him to have the card inside his body? And what we came up with, our best, um, our best explanation, was that they just couldn't be bothered thinking about all the possibilities that could come about because of it, and it could lead to possibly legal implications for them. Yeah, and also at the same time, there's, there's this mirrors the battle that hackers and governments have been having for the last 40 years. Basically, the, the, uh, a good example was in America, they, they locked down DVD encryption and said that it was a crime to even try to hack it. And they said that no one was allowed to work in encryption unless they were, they were sponsored by the government, basically. So the hackers went, went, built their own custom hardware and cracked DVD encryption and said, this is why we don't trust you with being the only people who can control encryption is because you simply you're not good enough and you're not smarter than the hackers. Mm. And that forced the government to change its hand a little bit. But we have similar laws in Australia. And basically it says that you know the, the government doesn't have the same motivations as the people necessarily all the time and that people should have access to the same tools that the government has access to. We're leading this charge now with implantable technology, which is we should have the right to control the technology. And just because you've put down a heavy-handed set of rules, we shouldn't have to follow them. Now, the, the, the important thing of this is I can't write the Opal system unless I agree to use their technology, no matter what that might be, no matter what the rules are. They can track me. They say they won't. But when I said I put this in my hand, they use that information to shut down my Opal card, Opal card that was registered to my name, thinking it was the one in my hand. And they didn't have any evidence other than an ABC News article. So this says, even if they say they won't use it against you, they fucking will. And this is why Science Party wants to end metadata retention is because these bureaucratic bodies, which are sometimes, and in the case of Opal is, um, licensed out to a third party, shouldn't have access over that because even if, even if they say they won't use it against you, they fucking will. It should be the people that have access over their own data and their own encryption. And we should speak to the government and these companies about how how and what we give to them and under what term. The, um, the metadata retention is... Sort of, it's worried me for a while. Um, I saw something in the newspaper recently about a guy wanting to actually see the data that they were collecting on him, and the government just said no. Um, I want to know, like, if there's a profile on me somewhere, I, should we be able to see it? And um, my immediate response is is yes. Yeah, <laughs> like they're public servants; they work for you. Like, you know, you pay your tax to pay their wages. Realistically, you, you're the one who should be able to have a say over what you do and don't see. And, like, at the next election, we can vote for that right. But if you vote for Labour or Liberal Party, I doubt that anything will ever happen. The older, the older parties don't, don't really get it. And I think in America there, there's a lot more of freedom ideal that always holds their government to account. And I think in Australia, with respect to privacy, the majority of people are a bit apathetic. Um, now, I, I don't personally, I don't actually believe in privacy that much. What I do object to is privacy for some. And when you have, um, you know, the politicians using apps like Wicker so that they can't be tracked while they're in charge of putting forward policies that track the civilian population, I don't think that's fair because they obviously understand that this that, that having metadata retention isn't a good thing because they deliberately go out of their way to make sure that they're not tracked. 
So why shouldn't we be afforded the same privileges? Now, speaking of political parties, how is the Science Party going? I got an email recently saying if we don't get enough people, we we might not you know survive. So it sort of worried me. Now, I, I, yeah, I was hoping to get a bit of an update from you about how they were going. Yeah, so we smashed it out. Basically, it was uh, it was coming up to time that all the political parties had to register. So we had to do, um, in fact, especially, um, I think it was James and Eve, who were the, the senators, for, uh, the, the Senate candidates for New South Wales. They sat up all night because there's qu- quite a lot of rules about having a political party. And we needed to make sure that all of our candidates, so all of our members still had valid details. So they had to go through. And remember, we're not funded. So big parties, they have their employees that do this for them because the, the tax dollars fund their parties. We had to go through manually and check every single membership. And a lot of those people had moved houses or no longer wanted to be a, science, a part of the science party or their membership details weren't correct since the last election. So we had to do that all again, make sure they were all registered. And then um, off the back of that, we didn't have quite enough people, so we needed to launch a membership drive. And all the other parties do this as well. As a micro party, this is actually quite a challenging thing to do. For the bigger parties, even if 25% of their members' details weren't correct, they still get to register. But when you're kind of right down the bottom, you need to work very hard to make sure you keep your status. So we've seen a few parties deregister this election uh, or this election cycle. So Bullet Train Party for New South Wales, I think it was. They deregistered because we had a bullet train policy and they said, we'll just um, give you our goodwill and encourage their voters to join our party. So this is good because we're starting to climb up that micro-party ladder to hopefully in the next election or two be a party the size of the Greens. Oh, wow. That would be so amazing. that's what we're going for now is trying to amalgamate people that have similar ideas to us and have one strong voice. And we've already kind of done this, but this, this used to be something we'd see more with things like the group voting ticket. So you used to be able to give your preferences. And it's something that people in the last election, a lot of people didn't really understand that the abolishment of the group voting ticket meant that we don't have preferences anymore. So instead, we ideologically kind of align with other parties that have a similar futurist goal, one of them being the Flux Party that wants a blockchain Senate, and then try and form a coalition that all has similar kind of values. And it was called the Alliance for Progress or the Alliance for Change. And this is basically all these people who are kind of future-thinking radical centrists that use data-driven policy to create a country that we think is strong and fair. So a blockchain Senate, how would that work? I think that your podcast wouldn't be long enough for me to explain the intricacies. <laughs> but basically, it's, it's, it's distributed direct democracy. And the way that it's looking now, so it's run by uh, Max K is the, the main advocate of it. Um, and he, he's one of the people running for the Senate. And basically, uh, the, the Senate's job is to vet bills or laws that want to be passed or changes to legislation and things like this. So basically, it, it functions as a kind of sanity check for anything that happens in the lower house. Now, it used to be made up once upon a time of the elders. So they would look over this and say, oh, you know, no, we tried to do that 20 years ago before you were born and that, that didn't work. So they could be this, this wisdom and experience. If you look at the Senate now, maybe that's not necessarily what it is, but that's the job it's meant to serve. The thing is that you're meant to send representatives that, that acted on your behalf to, sit, to see whether these things were sane or not. Now, in Australia right now, we have the access to things like mobile phones. Every person has a, has a mobile phone of voting age. So we don't need representatives. We can just cast our vote however we want. So things like the plebiscite would never have happened because they could have just said, put forward a same-sex marriage bill and we all could have voted on it, and it wouldn't have cost $122 million. So basically it says we can replace the entire Senate with an app on your phone that allows you to vote. Now, it also allows for things like if you care more about an issue, 
for you to be able to put more support behind it. And that would be at the risk of, you could basically have, say for example, from my understanding of how, the, how Flux works, and I'm sure someone else will prove me wrong, but basically, I'll misrepresent it, but basically say you have 100 votes per year and you can chuck them into whatever you want. It means things that you actually care about, you can have more say about, and it means that in their models, the good policy has a better chance of surviving and bad policy goes down the gurgler real quick. Well, because things that, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, the end game of having a, a blockchain Senate sounds like it has a lot of um, positive outcomes. But to be honest, I, I think you were right at the start when you said my podcast wouldn't be long enough to, to really properly explain it. Because I, I, can't, I, I can't really see um, how it's working, but what you're well, saying yeah, it amounts to it would function, is good. It would function uh, similar to a normal Senate. In fact, it, it, um, they've tested it. The technology works. Um, they can run it on existing blockchains if they need to. And Max is just launching his international project, which allows anyone to have the blockchain set it. So he can actually export this to other countries. And this is a nice segue, I guess, into yeah. blockchain technology. Yeah, blockchain works. I was just recently in San Francisco. Between a third and a half of every person I spoke to, actually, it's probably more than that now that I think about it, were doing something involved with blockchain. And it makes sense. It's, it, it's as exciting as internet was. Yeah, it's, it's massively exciting for me as well. Um, the success... Have you done with blockchain stuff? Um, not really. I mean, I've just been watching it. The other day, I, I got myself an Ethereum wallet and a Bitcoin wallet. I haven't bought anything yet. The hoops you have to jump through to buy um, some Ethereum... Ugh. They're pretty annoying. I had to take a picture of myself holding a piece of paper saying, yes, this is me and I would like to trade cryptocurrency just to get an account. And, and that's still get that's still pending. It's been pending for a couple which, of which years. Now. Just, 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 just as, a, as a little aside, which, um, which service did you use? Um, I, it was CoinSpot, that one. Yeah. I, I tried another one before that, but um, I was having trouble with that as well. So just, just a quick plug. Um, I actually run a course teaching people how to get set up because I found the process incredibly difficult and I figured if it was difficult for me, it would be even more difficult for, difficult for people that don't have the same skill. So I thought I would walk them through the entire process of how to do it. Oh, wow. Ended up using Coinbase as the place to turn fiat currency into cryptocurrency and then I used Bittrex as my place to trade altcoins, which are the, the, the cryptocurrencies that aren't the big ones, you know, like Ethereum, Litecoin and, and um, Bitcoin. So those are the big ones that everyone kind of trades. And then the altcoins are the things, more experimental currencies, things like Dogecoin, the world's first meme-based currency. <laughs> That's pretty funny. <laughs> I, was, I was looking at Bitcoin back yeah. um, a long time ago. When I was at uni, I was living in a share house, and I remember my friend talking about Bitcoin. And I think at that time, it was really cheap. Like It was about $20 a bit. I was looking at it yesterday, and I saw that it breached $6,000. This is an incredibly volatile environment. So if you invest, it can go up and down really quickly by you know hundreds of percent a day. Yeah. You are also, not all of the security has been completely worked out. It's the Wild West in cryptocurrency now. Uh, you regularly see things like $7 million of, of money disappear. Uh, people get their phones hacked and become a target when they do this. But I would recommend everyone to only invest what you're prepared to lose and to educate yourself as much as you can. But it is really fun and it's exciting. And if you care about the technology and you want to see a world that runs like this in a decentralized way that's for the benefit of people at the moment rather than you know big banks, 
but it's not a bad idea. And also, you know, if you're clever about how you invest, uh, I keep all my savings in crypto. I have the reason for this, if if you in, if you are clever about how you invest, you can make much better returns than a bank gives you, and you get to support a great technology. Like I, I have my day to day account in Commonwealth Bank, and I get like what two or three percent per year. They don't do anything special for me. I don't give a fuck about the banks. Like they're like a necessary evil. But with crypto, we all all of a sudden have the technology that they've been using to run the country and do these things. And now we can choose to do it on our own in a way that's even better. And that's what gets me excited about cryptos. Yeah, that's that's what gets me excited about as well. I mean, I, I was going to buy just a little bit, but it's more about, yeah, seeing a world where the control of finance is decentralized. That's exactly right. And it's not just finance. You know, the blockchain was created for Bitcoin, but the real invention was the blockchain, not the currency that comes from it. And blockchain is this... It's a decentralized um, ledger. And basically this, what this means is it's a public record of events that everyone agrees on as truth. Now, once you have this, it actually opens up so many more avenues, not, not just currency. So we can see things where we can have houses that own themselves and charge rent, and then when they've earned a certain amount of rent, they can go off and buy another house. We think this is kind of crazy, but there's, um, ANZ just did two transactions on the blockchain of houses. So potentially one of those entities could have been a house buying another house. So we're seeing kind of the beginnings of a snowball that may radically change the way that we live. It can do things like track electricity. So when we have people with uh, solar panels on their roofs, they can accurately track how much energy they put back onto the grid. So we can have fairer systems about how electricity is charged. We can see things like passports and marriages being done on the blockchain. And when we see this, any any event that's, that's recorded now that the government tracks, could be publicly recorded if it's in our interest and we can be the ones leading the charge i like the sound of that at the end, i like how it just increases efficiency um yeah. the efficiency of sending money from one country to another or from one person to another exactly right and the thing is that um fiat currency is no more nonsense than cryptocurrency like both of these things are just concepts of value that we're exchanging and a trust in the system. The only reason the Australian dollar has anything is because we can trade it with each other and we have confidence that we can then trade that again for the same value. And as long as you have the security that blockchains offer, which is that basically it's this publicly recorded truth, then you can have as much confidence in that as you do in the Australian currency or an American currency. You can go to a third world country and trade American dollars because they think that this is valuable because America has security. So that's why I think cryptos will dominate this. It's not backed by a country, it's backed by its own internal security. Uh, we're seeing coins like Go, the OMG coin, which provides a platform in Southeast Asia for payments being made by a company that already has POS terminals with people that don't have bank accounts. So we're seeing these really exciting ways of reimagining stuff. And you know, all the banking technology hasn't really changed since the 80s. So we use the thing called rail, the same rails, which is the, the way that the money moves that we did in the 80s because everyone's scared to change it. Because if you make a mistake, a bank could lose a trillion dollars overnight or more. Mm. And now we have a competing currency coming, uh, competing uh, platform coming in and disrupting all of that in a safe way. So we'll see banks adopt this rather than create their own. I think they've, they've already started. I saw, have you heard about Ripple? You probably would. Yeah. What do you think? What do you think of that currency? Um, I think Ripple's an interesting experiment. I don't think you know. Ripple's a tricky one. It's, it, so just for anyone that doesn't know what Ripple is, Ripple is basically a centralized cryptocurrency set up by a bank, 
they mined all of their coins in the beginning. People who are advocates of crypto don't like it, and that's kind of why I bought it, because I thought maybe this is more digestible to the public. But mm. when one bank signs onto, onto Ripple, it could change everything. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm of two minds about Ripple because I don't know whether I wanted to invest in a, in a cryptocurrency that's essentially a bank. <laughs> that's what I'm trying to avoid. So, you know, it's very, Ripple is a very divisive cryptocurrency. It doesn't have a huge trading volume. It's not worth a whole amount. At the moment, it's worth about 29 cents for one Ripple. And I think that at this Maybe Ripple was a bit too early, but if a bank signs onto it, you know, it will completely change everything. But until the banks really get behind it, it doesn't have much value because the general crypto community aren't that keen to see it succeed because it kind of undermines what they're trying to do. Yeah, I think there's also the question of can you use it to buy stuff rather than just exchanging money? So I think at the moment it's just used for exchanging money. That's right. Like well, the thing is, like, I exchange money internationally using Bitcoin as my intermediary now. So I can put my Australian dollars into Bitcoin, go to San Francisco and pull American dollars out of a Bitcoin ATM there. So Ripple's not solving a problem that hasn't already been solved. Right. Yeah. As a user of that currency. Like, it's, there's much more value in Bitcoin for me because there's Bitcoin ATMs. And all Ripple does really is exchange that. Like, maybe they'll bring out a credit card, but there's already Bitcoin credit cards. So I'm like, are they solving a tangible problem that hasn't already been solved? And, and the reason I sold my Ripple, I don't believe they do. Yeah. I get much more much more value from Bitcoin. I, I, don't, I don't think Bitcoin's the best either. I think Ethereum is the real hero. Yeah. But I'm, you know, I'm using Bitcoin because it's, it's the one that does what I need to do. So and that's not charging me, you know, the ripoff fees they charge you at the bloody airport. Why do you think Ethereum's the real hero? Oh, where do I begin? Um, <laughs> for a start, Ethereum has a founder. Uh, Vitalik Buterin uh, can sell his vision continuously, and his vision's beautiful. So his vision is of building a world computer. So all these computers that are running the Ethereum network are all connected together, and that the mining of the Bitcoin and the network that's created is doing real work. So when you're buying Ethereum, you're actually buying tokens that allow you to use the Ethereum network to do things. With a smart contract on the Ethereum network, it can function as an escrow service without having to pay huge fees. So there's all this functionality, but basically Ethereum has utility. It's not just a currency that has value because it exists. It actually does work. And that it allows true disruption, which is disruption that creates more disruption. So change that creates exponentially more change. And there's a whole heap of services using the Ethereum network as their backbone. And that, that's why Ethereum has value. It's creating businesses. Well, I'm, I'm really excited to see what happens to Ethereum. Ethereum is, is one to watch. Uh, Ethereum transactions are quicker. And Ethereum is the real one to watch. If, even if Bitcoin becomes the gold standard, so be it. You know, gold's useless anyway. Um, so Ethereum's heavily traded. It has value. If you buy Ethereum, you can actually build your own business with the Ethereum that you have. You can use it in your day-to-day -day life. We'll see Ethereum overtake Bitcoin at some point just because it was forward-thinking and it, it was the second one to come along that fixed all the things that Bitcoin had problems with. Bitcoin is able to change, so it will still dominate over fiat currency, but Ethereum will, will be king. Well, here's a prediction for you. Ethereum is going to overtake Bitcoin. And now it's on the record, um, yeah, so <laughs> we can come back in 10 years from now and... And, um, yeah, there you go. We'll, we'll, see, and, uh, we'll see what happens. But also at the same time, 
I'll say like Ethereum becomes value because valuable because people use it and that if you really care about the technology and you want to see it succeed you have to go and use it you have to learn about how to program it you have to start putting things that you are interested in into smart contracts become an early adopter because if you don't it won't ever live that dream like all these cryptocurrencies could die tomorrow if people stopped using them and at that point we have to use fiat currency and that's not a world I want to live in and if you agree be a part of it be a proponent of it get on board and become an evangelist and tell everyone why it's great and use it with you and your friends I think that the scenario where people just stop using cryptocurrencies is an extremely extremely unlikely one they are satisfying a niche that normal currency just cannot and one of them is just the fact that they can you can have anonymous buying so we know that for example bitcoin its price was pretty correlated to the silk road expanding Um, yeah so as long as people want to buy things anonymously on the internet cryptocurrencies are going to have value definitely i think the thing is though that it's it's past the point now and we're starting to see it that crypto is isn't just that currency anymore for, for that yeah. It has so much so much so much more use and that Bitcoin was definitely the currency of the dark web. It yeah. still is, but it has so much more now and Ethereum has no connection to the dark web. Um, I, I love the idea of these um, uh, micro economies that get created. So, you know, um, things like a local coin. Um, there's a lot of passionate people in small communities in both Sydney and Melbourne who might want to keep money locally. And if you can create local coins where you can only put money in, but you can't necessarily take it out very easily, and you have to spend that coin in that local community, you have this way that you can hold value there. So small country towns, this is important as well, because it reduces the amount of money leaving and increases the amount of money coming in. And this could be great for all these people, but you need these different communities need to adopt it. Otherwise, it won't bring value to them. Wow, there's just... So much more to think about with um, blockchain technology. It's just the beginning as well. This is, you know, this the, the blockchain is this giant hammer looking for nails. And there are so many different industries, communities, and ideas that can be a nail for this incredibly powerful tool. And it won't be long before we start seeing blockchain popping up absolutely everywhere. everywhere. We're seeing small startups now. But the best stuff will come from people who are outside the software community and the finance community when they understand the power of this tool to be able to revolutionize whatever it is they're interested in. Like dog breeding. You know, you could put dogs on the blockchain so you can have records of family trees and value assigned to them all the way along. And that was just the first thing that came into my mind (laughs) because you can track all this stuff publicly. So this is where we'll see that real power come in. Wow, this has turned out to be a conversation more about... um blockchain than cyborg rights <laughs> oh yeah well it all it all links in you know all these technologies are moving towards one point the singularity and and it's Whoa, as far singularity. as everything is just playtime until then you mean ai oh yeah potentially like the singularity for me is a much bigger concept than that but it's basically we'll say for now that it's the time that machine learning overtakes human learning yeah it's only it's only science fiction at the moment and we're making huge progress it's not far away. Like I'm looking like 2025, 20, 2030 for this to happen. It's been awesome talking to you, uh, Mia. Yeah, Fantastic, man. Great conversation. I enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah. Thanks a lot Beautiful. for your time, Thanks Mia. Thanks for your time. Really appreciate it. Okay. See ya. Okay.